Dear listeners, welcome to the podcast. In this recording, I bring you a short and more concise version of episode one. Father, why do we have money? I edited out many interferences to the flow of storytelling and many of my jokes for those of you that for some reason don't enjoy my jokes. As this podcast is also an exercise in communication, I am happy to release this version for those who provided me with feedback and asked for it. Why do this? I don't see the impact. Mainly I do it because it interests me and it's fun. I would be happy to say I want to change the world, I want to help people. I like to talk about these topics with people. But also because most of the time the human discussion goes very slow. And if I can contribute a comma or a dot to the human discussion, I'll be happy. And that's enough for me. I live in this world and it doesn't make sense and we have climate change and we have wars and we have scarcity which is not real so what can I do I can do this it's, it's not much and, and this is going to be my contribution but this is where I start Hello and welcome to the Postmaterialist Podcast. I'm your host, Ilya Sogolov. Our world is troubled by war, economic crisis and climate change. So much so that many talk about the need for a different system altogether. This podcast will explore thinking, talking and making system change. We will explore questions like, can our culture and behavior be altered or are we chained to a so-called human nature? How does culture change? How to live in a system if we want to change it? And what societies are even possible? We will speak with scientists, activists, and other guests while keeping things as scientific and entertaining as possible. Just a brief moment to introduce myself. I came to Berlin... I studied here political science and sociology for master only sociology. I went through all the three major universities of Berlin, ending starting now my PhD in uh, the Technical University of Berlin. Welcome to this first episode of the Postmaterialist podcast. In this episode, I interviewed Jonathan Gunmore. Who is a speaker and activist of a movement in which we both took part, which ideas have changed my thinking till this very day. To jump right to the beginning of the interview, go to minute seven and a half. Hello and welcome to the Postmaterialist podcast. Hello, Jonathan. Hey, Leah, how are you? Jonathan, you're, you're a speaker of a social movement that we used to be involved in called the Venus Project. Yeah. And for money, you're teaching math. Yep. And you're a student of social science now, former student of economy, right? Correct. I'm a sociologist. That's what I do here in Berlin. I research mobility. I research how culture change, specifically in the context of bicycles. <laughs> Very focused. But we know each other before. You came to my previous university, the Technion, yep. either to give a speech Or to present the idea, which I was watching through like documentary films that used yep. to be called 
the Zeitgeist 3 moving forward. Yeah, and, and I, then, think, I think we, uh, we showed the third movie in the Technion, and then we had like questions and answered section. Yeah, and the third movie is the only one that makes sense. So skip the first two. Don't, it's weird shit. Don't watch it. And yeah, and it changed my perception on the whole system. And that is the starting point of the podcast. So the whole system, everything, culture, money, politics, everything. And now I've been, for 10 years, I've been trying to get my shit together. And I've been studying. I've been having fun in Berlin. I became finally a researcher, which you tra- is... You travel a lot. I see you tracking. Yeah, I'm, I'm hiking. Yeah, I was hiking. Yeah. But finally, now that I got, I don't know if I got my shit together, but you know, like, to the extent that I have, I, I have to do this because otherwise living in the world, which it makes very little sense. And you will tell us pretty much like how, what, what is this way of thinking and why, why we are so concerned about the system and changing it. You can start talking about these ideas, this set of ideas, this way of thinking, and that will, that will make us understand why am I walking with this idea in my head that I have to podcast about it. And why do you give lectures to, to groups of people, young people specifically, in all parts of Israel, in Hebrew, and that's the first time you do it on record in English? Yeah. Let's, let's talk about that or start. Shall we talk about economy? Sure. You're not, you're not lecturing now because it's a talk, but uh, I think actually, I think I remember how you start. You start from the guy selling uh, stockings in the subway. Maybe I'll start from another point if you don't mind. Yeah. I'm very interested in economy and, and economics. And it started when I was quite young and my father... He was teaching me a lot, and basically he's an economist and an accountant. And I remember me going with him in our uh, neighborhood, and I saw in one of the uh, windows shopping, um, how do you say that? Uh, Display, displays of the shop displays. And they sell like uh, these... Vitrines, that's also a vitrine. So they say like the saxophones for kids when you just press and sounds come off, you're like you don't need to actually do anything. And I was very excited. And I said, wow, father, can you buy that for me? And he said, no, like sometimes it happens, right? He said, no. And I was like really bitching about it. And I'm like, father, wh- why do we have money? Because I understand that the reason he don't want to buy it to me is because it costs money, not because he has something against saxophones, you know, or something like that. And my father told me, you know what, Jonathan, I'll tell you why we have money. I'll tell you. Imagine you Questioning are... Questioning the system at age five. What a chad. What a what? Okay, continue. <laughs> what a... Totah. What a... <laughs> Questioning <laughs> the system at age... I don't know how, were, how old you were. I was like maybe seven or something. That's um, pretty... That's pretty badass. Okay, sorry. Continue. And so my father told me, you know what? I'll tell you why do we have money? Just to, to make clear, my father is a capitalist and I was a capitalist until I was like 25 or something. And my father told me, okay, imagine, imagine you are four friends and you have like two apples. So you kind of need to decide who gets the apples. So you can use different system. And I was like, yeah, you know, like who's the hungriest? He can take the apples. And my father will say, okay, that's cute. But we don't operate like that usually. 
you know, not in big societies at least. <laughs> and I'm saying like, I was saying, okay, maybe like a grown-up can decide. And he, my father said, yes, sometimes we do that. We can call it like a totalitarian government or like, uh, I don't know, the chief in a smaller society or something. He, he just saying who can get the apples and who not. But this is not how we operate in the West or today in most of the world. So what he was explaining to me is like what we do is saying, okay, every apple costs $5 or whatever, you know. And then we ask, who among the four friends wants to buy these apples in $5? And let's say all four of them raise their hands. So we didn't solve the problem because we still have only two apples and four friends. So we might say something like, okay, then apples cost $10. Who wants it now? And then two friends, they fall and they say, whoa, $10, that's too much for me. I can settle, I can, I can, for me, peers are enough. You know, I don't, this, I don't need these apples. And then we solved the problem because the two friends who are willing to, to pay $10, they get the apples. And solved what, in air quotes because it's going to be audio. Oh, yeah, yeah, in air quotes, because obviously there are two friends who obviously wanted the apples. We know it because they were willing to pay $5 for that, which means they, they did want the apples. But in $10, they, they don't allow to themselves or whatever. And then we kind of solve the problem. And these two friends who pay $10 can get the apple. So what basically my father wanted to tell me his message was in our system, the one, the people who pays the most, they get the stuff. This is how it works. So money is just a way to decide who gets what. But actually, what was underlying this was even a deeper truth he wanted to tell me. And this deeper truth was that, listen, son, life is hard. It's very hard to produce things. We never have enough of the things. This is why the example starts from two apples and four friends, because we never have enough of these things. And this is why we need uh, in the beginning to, be, to even decide who gets what. Because obviously, if we had 10,000 apples and four friends, no one will ask the question, how do we divide it or who gets it? Just they eat as much as they want, and the rest is probably be rotten, you know? So mm -hmm. this was the deeper truth. Like life is hard. It's hard to produce things. We need to decide who gets what. And money is right. the system, the clean and easy system to choose who gets what. And I was going with this message since I was seven until approximately when I got to, the, uh, to be 14 years old. And then my father told me another story. And this is the story you mentioned earlier. Right. And, and this was the story of... Him getting, uh, doing like a, a trip in Europe, a Euro trip uh, after the army, after he was serving the army, he was like 20 or something. And he tells me he was in the underground, in the metro, and there was an old guy selling stockings from a cotton box. And this guy, he declares, he's shouting it to the air, that these stockings, they can hold for 50 years. And stockings, and my father knew it, he was a very, um, let's say, passionate about consumerism. And he knew that stockings can't hold 50 years. Maybe the men, they don't know in the, in the studio, but stockings hold between... 
Sorry? Well, in Berlin, they maybe know, but I mean, maybe, I we never know. know. So, so stocking holes between like one night to three months, six months, maybe. Am I correct? <laughs> like we don't need to confirm this because <laughs> Valerie is not on the call. You're like all, all, all the, you, you hold the, the weight of the old gender, all the gender on you. <laughs> Tiny. Depends on if the girl knows how to kick. Okay. Depends so, on what? So you as a boxer, as a kickboxer, perhaps. Oh, yeah. Depends if the girl knows how to kick. Okay. If she kicks it, it, it's, uh, it dies in five minutes okay minutes, so yeah if, if you're slightly sporty then then you have like no chance keeping the stocking alive more than yeah okay yeah. good answer so so basically my father he kind of knew that it's not possible but this old guy he actually demonstrated so he's like put his foot on the on the uh, stocking and he pulls the stocking all over his head and nothing happens to the stocking and he continues he's like putting a sheet of paper inside the stocking and he's taking like a utility knife and he cut it from the outside and the paper gets cut and the stocking isn't. And my father, he's like kind of confused and he's going like slowly, slowly to this old person and he asks him, okay, if you have such an amazing product, how come you're selling that in the underground? You should go like to the big companies, sell them this idea and you can make millions. And this guy, he's like pointing on his head, means my father don't really understand how things work. And he tells my father, if these big companies, if they sell it, if they uh, try and if they start to produce it, then they can sell like, let's say, 7 billion pieces. But after that, they can sell it for 50 years. So they close the factories, they send the workers home, and everyone loses. So in this economic situation, in our rules the rules of our game it's just make more sense economically you make more profit if the stockings will hold for a lower time for like a shorter time and actually this happens with most of the products we have today most of them designed to wear out in a shorter time that's possible like they never had, or not never but 99 of the time they don't design the products and they say, how can we make it to hold the longest we can? And like, it's almost never the question. This story confused me because when I was seven, he told me the world is very hard. It's very hard to produce. And this story makes me think we make it hard. It's not like nature make it hard. We as a society, as human beings, we make it hard to produce. Like we, it's very easy to produce, but we do it in an artificial way. We make the uh, we keep the scarcity. We keep it in short supply, like that. We are never have enough. Let's say. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm not gonna like start questioning the origin of the of the story. It's it's a good anecdotal example. It doesn't have to be true, I think, because because that that everybody can kind of agree, or can you agree that this is the case with the stockings? If you do invent those tokens, and if you do sell them in the metro, then then. The whole yeah. thing went uh, going. That concept has a name. It's, it's called um, the name of that concept behind it. Is, uh, the name's blend obsolescence. Blend obsolescence, exactly. Yeah. What we're gonna talk about? Yeah. And uh, maybe just <laughs> already jump ahead. The, this blend obsolescence used to be. It sounds like right when you hear it for the first time, maybe ten years ago. It sounds a little bit conspiratory, a little bit weird. But now my research institute 
had research project on planned obsolescence. So now it's today's mainstream science. And my next interviewee, hopefully, she done project on obsolescence. And this is what this is what I want to talk next. So just to put this con this this little talk of our unprofessional talk into a context. Okay, please continue, Jonathan. Actually, and planned obsolescence is just like one strategy that the goal is the bigger thing is artificial scarcity because our economy is based on things are in shortage. They are quite rare. If you have something that is too um, abundant, if you have too many of it, the price goes down, right? Supply and demand. If you have too much supply, if you have like, let's say 100 billion iPhones in the, in, in the world and it's like everywhere, then the price right. goes down. If you have too much potatoes, if you like produce, let's say we want, let's say we want five potatoes each and we produce like a hundred potatoes each. We have so many potatoes, the price goes down and down and down and lower and lower. And have hmm? to destroy those potatoes, right? I don't remember who plan- said that. I think it was Ali. He said capitalism is like 250 years old. Yeah, exactly. This is the point that Ali was, che- he was fact checking your lecture or your not lecture, your key point from from what you're speaking about. And this is exactly what we talked about before. And I sent Ali to, to check so we don't, uh, so we don't say anything wrong. But I think Ali, uh, that's, these are the numbers, right? Yeah, like two, 250 years of this system of economy that we are living in. Basically. Yeah. It is like modern capitalism. It's not. It's not, it's not easy to of... say. It's like democracy. You you can say it was first made in Athens. Yeah. You can say no, it's France with the revolution or whatever. It's very hard to say. But like I'm taking the book of Adam Smith, uh, the Wealth of Nations, which is like the Bible of capitalism, and this book is like 280 years ago, years old. And in that time, in that time, the world was very different from the world today, 280 years ago. Like, you hardly had any countries. It wasn't countries, it was like kingdoms. Germany was still, didn't exist, right? It was like very, um, like small provinces of, of uh, yes. dukes and kings and whatever. And Bismarck make it all together just like 150 years ago, more or less, right? But we can ask Jens about it. Jens can fact check this. From your school knowledge, <laughs> more or less. You're right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. And when this economy start to establish, scarcity was something that is very natural. I mean, you couldn't have too many potatoes at that time. Actually, if uh, there were like a, a drought, you don't have enough potatoes, and this was something common enough. It could happen quite often, and you couldn't imagine people have like. 100 t-shirts in their closet. That was unimaginable 250 years ago. So in that time, scarcity was something natural. Like it was something that can happen very easy. But since then, our technology, our way to manufacture, you, you can't even recognize it's the same world. Today, it's very easy to manufacture. Today, it's not like we have a very hard world. It's very hard to produce, like my father said. Today, we produce every year 30 billion T-shirts, like shirts, not necessarily T-shirts, like 30 billion. And we are less than 10 billion people on Earth. And we do it yearly, every year. 
It's very easy to produce food today. Ali, look it up. We need to know. Where does this number coming from? <laughs> Ali, look this number up. I don't know if that's real, but it sounds plausible. <laughs> yeah, T-shirt, you said? How many shirts? Yet, shirts, sir. shirts I'm yeah. checking it now. I'm checking it. Let's check this. I mean, I'm, I'm, we're generally interested. That's a random, that's a random ass fact. It's not a random ass fact. It's around 30 billion, uh, like items, items a, a year. And this is yearly, right? So in like decade, this is 300 billion. Today, the competition between manufacturers is not about manufacturing. Like if you're talking about, I don't know. Sorry. I'm not, I'm really not into fashion, but let's say mm-hmm. about. Two quite regular, uh, two regular um, um, brands of shirts. Like, I don't know, in, in Israel, it will be Fox and Castro. I don't know what's in, in Berlin, right? But, Zara and what's all. Yeah, Z- Zara shirt. and whatever. whatever. Yeah. So they, they not compete <laughs> about who can produce more officially. This is not the problem. This is not the economic problem anymore. They compete who can sell more shit that they can easily produce. And they need to sell this shit to people who have so much shit in their house already. This is the economic problem of the 21st century. Not producing. Producing is easy. Selling your shit. Marketing. This is the problem. Producing is very easy. But somehow, we still use this economic system which assume and need scarcity for something to be valuable. So we use an economic system that we actually inherit from our grand, 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 grandparents or whatever, yeah, like 280 years ago, from a world that Germany still didn't exist. No yeah. one was uh, atheist in this, pi- in this time. Wars was still made mostly by swords and arrows. I'm not saying no gunpowder, but mostly, most of the wars, most of the yeah. wars was made by uh, arrows and swords. And we take our economic system from that era to today, where it's so easy to produce, but we still use the economic system, who actually needs something to be in a rare, like in scarcity, to have some value. So the way to kind of make this work is we actually make artificial scarcity. We keep the scarcity in an artificial way. And planned obsolescence is just one way to do it. It's just like one Yes, I have to break down at this point. First of all, your beard is just absolutely fashionable and don't deny that. (laughs) Shame. Okay. How do we make fashion scarce nowadays? What what the Venus Project says is that our economic system is like a tradition. It's something we inherit from a very old time. And we didn't notice that somewhere around... I don't know, 60s of the last uh, uh, century, like 1960, maybe even earlier, the world changed so dramatically. And I mean about like technology changed so dramatically that we are not in the scarcity world anymore. We are not there, but we still use the same economic system which needs scarcity to work. And we should change it. We should work, um, go towards a different system of abundance, which means we don't need to maintain the scarcity anymore. And I'll just mention maybe a few ways we do it. Like, how do we keep artificial scarcity up to today? So one thing is the planned obsolescence. Second thing, with food, I don't know if you knew it, but if 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 it was a good year, let's say the farmers this year had a good year, they did the work, they did it perfectly. 
And we have so many potatoes because they all was working very hard, very good. And we had enough rain. Everything was, you know, perfect. And we have so many potatoes. Testing about potatoes in Germany is lovely. You mentioned uh, also the fact about the T-shirt was right. Over 2 billion T-shirts a year. So as Ali said, just a fact check, 2 billion T-shirts are sold worldwide. But this is just T-shirt. Remember that most of the ladies, they don't wear T-shirts. They wear other mm. kinds of shirts. And you're not wearing a T-shirt at the moment. So this is just T-shirt, 2 billion. So I'm pretty sure 30 billion would be correct. More or less. Ali, one more question. Where did you find this fact? I'm super, I, I mean, also, will you'll get us the link for sure and, and uh, whatever, but citation, where is it from? Uh, this one, because uh, it was very fast checked, Google, I googled it, but... Uh, That's I just what Google says. Okay, okay. Yeah. The, well, well, find the source. Once you find the source, just break in and uh, intrude on us. Okay. So imagine it's a very nice uh, weather, very nice year. And all the farmers, they were very uh, working very hard and they produced so many potatoes, so many. So what will happen to the price of potatoes in this system? Yeah. It will go down, right? Down. And it can go down so much, then it can be lower than what the farmer need to pay to the people who pick the potatoes or whatever. It can be so low that it's not worth to the farmer. So what they do I'm speaking very generally. It can be changed. It can, it can be different from country to country, farmer to farmer. But what they do usually, they go together and they, say, and they like speak together and they say, organize together and they say, okay, we're going to burn 20% of our crop because we need to have less potatoes actually. Because when we have so many potatoes, the price is lower and they burn the potatoes or they do whatever that need to make the supply a smaller, shorter. And actually in the USA, they have this, and here is Ali, a, a great moment again to fact check, but in, in, in the US, they have this problem since something like the 20s, because their technology was already so advanced and they have so much large arable land that they produce already too much. Then the federal government, they actually subsidize some of the farmers every year to not even start producing. So some of the farmers, they get money from the federal uh, government to not even take their um, uh, machines out of the shade. And this year, just don't do anything and we pay you so and so and so. Because otherwise they would have so much production, so much potatoes or onions or whatever, that the market, the capitalistic market, can't even work. So... This is a federal law. Yes. I mean, what I, year? What year? The 20s or the no? The I 20s, think the 20s. Before the recession, no? I huh? think the 20s. I think the 20s, but maybe Ali can find it. It's a federal law. It's not like something local. It's a federal law. And they actually, I think it's, I think it exists up to today. And they actually pay some of the farmers to not even start work. So otherwise they would have too much, too much food and the uh, price would be lower. But if we think about economics and I'm not sure if in English it works, but in Hebrew, the, the meaning of the word economics, kalkala, means to, like, uh, to take care of, to have enough, to take care of, to, to take care of the needs. This is like the, uh, how do you to translate provide, this verbally? To provide, I would to say. To provide, yeah, to, exactly. This is the exact Sorry. translation. The translation, at least in Hebrew, the translation of the word economics, 
is actually to provide. But our economy, our economy, at least, at least since the 60s, is not about providing anymore because actually it's quite easy to provide, but then it's hard to sell and market. So it's not about providing anymore. And it's actually almost the opposite. So this is why the government of the US, because if you want to provide, there is not, not such things as like too much food. You know what I mean? That means, okay, we have enough food, that's good. But actually, if you have enough food, if it's not in scarcity, then you can't really sell it. There is no like price for it. So it's, yeah, very, yeah. Hard. So it's very hard to uh, our system, our economic system to run. Sorry? Is the jury finding it plausible? Is that, is that, is that make sense so far? I'm still just understanding supply and demand very much so. Uh, I, I don't know what's the solution. Well, there's something that works. We're not here to offer a solution yet, I think. I mean, I mean, the solution is to have, to have a system which has abundance, but how? We don't know. Like to have enough for everyone. This is, this is roughly what we're trying to say. But how, this is the question from here, from which we start, how to have rules of a game. We're playing a game in economy that will provide for everyone while not wasting any energy or any products or any throwing away or destroying the planet. This is, this is the question. What do you think, Jonathan? Did you like my... Sorry, I was reading uh, what's Ali saying. About oh, yeah, that. the potato stuff. Let's, <laughs> let's read it. The potato controller of 1929 was based on... Uh, by the way, potato controller is one of the spells that did not make it into the final edition of Harry Potter. You can say it, Ali. You, you can just like... I'm not, uh, sure this is, I'm not sure it's the same law because it doesn't say what this law actually uh, offers. So much so potatoes in this so podcast. Uh, yeah, yeah, Ali, tell us about it. Okay, I found it on uh, Wikipedia and yeah, it's not a complete because it's a, it's a page about... Uh, com- and yeah, it's based that government uh, is controlling and saying the farmers not to produce exactly as you said because the price uh, goes higher basically yeah. if they produce go lower go too low uh, go lower sorry. yeah exactly right okay, okay so. keep searching it so you have like solid sources no no you have solid like, sources like Wikipedia is for me it's Wikipedia is about laws for me it's often enough but people uh, like to talk down Wikipedia because anyone can edit it people really talk shit about it especially if you're an academic like yeah just follow the links Ali follow the link see where it comes from Ali found some better sources five minutes later so Ali I wasn't so far I said the 20s I see it's the 30s <laughs> yeah, you, you you did a good job. I mean, really good. I'm impressed. Oh no, the potato controller is like 29, so I wasn't that far. 35 is just when it's like uh, eventually passed, I guess. Signed. Yeah. Yeah, I think you you and you said 1920s, you, so you were right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I I didn't hear the commenting slash what i said what i said um uh, no, the, what's the, the solution then ah, okay. and i was yeah. saying well the solution is to have abundance of a system that provides everyone enough and more than enough but how to do it we don't provide you an answer this is the research question of us all yeah for me for for me just starting the debate starting talking about it i want to see that in tv people talking about it just to people to know that at the moment we can at least technically, I'm not saying how to th- do that politically or how to do that economically, 
but just to know that technically we can provide very easy to everyone on earth what they need. And I want right. to give one example. I'm not sure how to translate it into like a other culture, other cultures, but you know, these things that kids usually collect, they like pay good money to collect some like um, cards, uh, stickers or cards, like a uh, football cards or whatever. Do you have something like that? Of course, this shit still exists here, right? Sorry, but the I audience, see them on the street the, sometimes. The audience, it's garbage. The audience know what I'm talking about? Yes. Yeah, okay. Baseball cards or Pokemon cards. Yeah, like Pokemon cards. Something that you collect, it's trendy at the moment. All the kids do it. Like all the kids, almost all the kids do it. And it costs like it's good. You're paying that for that like good dollars. So let's talk about that. I had a friend, which a good friend, where we were like in a sixth grade. He got every day like $10 or something to buy this shit. He was buying like five or six packs of these cards. And he was like buying them and he opened the, the envelope, the package, and he looks at the cards and he threw them to the garbage, like the cards and the package. And he opened the second one. He looked at the cards and he put all the cards in the garbage. Yeah. Do you know what, what he does? Because he already have those cards or what? Yeah, because he already <laughs> have those cards, right? Because he buys five every day. He has all the regular cards. And he's looking for the rare ones, right? Like they're the special ones. Uh -huh. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. But right. what makes the cards so special? Like, is it so hard? Mm -hmm. They bring it from the Himalaya or from the deep oceans or like, <laughs> why is it Himalaya? Mukesh is from the Himalaya. That's why he laughs. Okay, he knows so... that it doesn't come. Maybe he produces that. Just like <laughs> NFTs, it's all about what's rare. NFTs, yeah. That's the new, that's the new card game of the grown-ups. Of the grown-ups. So I don't want to be a podcast that talks about NFTs. Let's move away from this topic quickly. So, so basically what makes it rare, it's actually just a human decision of the producer, right? He goes to the manufacturer, to the, like, to the place who prints that and says, you know what, print like from this card, print like 20 million and from this card, print like 10 million and from this card, print only like 3,000. And usually the printer will say, you know, to print 3,000 or a million might be not very different in price. Maybe you want to print some more, you know, and this guy would say, no, 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 believe me, print only 3,000. And Only five Charizards in the whole <laughs> collection of five billion. Exactly. Only five. And, and eventually, and eventually, you see kids spend millions on that. But now let's try to make a very simple calculation. Okay, let's do it for Israel, okay? Yeah. The, the numbers might be sound weird because it's not your numbers, but okay. We have like a, a million and a half kids, okay? Okay. Like in school. Right. Like in school, yeah. a million and a half. And then... Out if, of a 10 million population, something, yeah, like something like that. And if we want, if we want to provide, right? If the economy uh, goal is to provide and we want to provide these kids, we want to give them the fucking whole collection. Like uh, we want to, uh, for them to catch them all, right? <laughs> yes. And we're going to print <laughs> from each card a million and a half copies. And if we print a million and a half copies, how much will it cost? Like each copy? Uh, if I say like two euro cents, that makes sense for you guys? Probably, yes. If you have a printer, yeah. Yeah, if you print, if you go to a... a, a how do you say? 
Printers, printers shop, I guess. Print. So if you go to a printer a, factory, yeah, yeah. If you go <laughs> to a big place who actually print books, usually whatever you know, like, and uh, you want to order from him a million and a half copies of this sticker, this card. Okay, let's say five cent. Okay, five cent each, and then it costs five cent, and you have like two hundred cards in the collection. So time five cents, that would cost you what? 10 euro? So you yeah. can provide each kid the whole collection for 10 euro. It will be very easy to do that. But in our system, each kid spends so much more than 10 euros in his life on this ship. But yet, you probably don't know even one kid who has the whole collection. Yeah. That's I how guess. economy works. So basically, this is the model of the whole economy. I mean, it's very, very easy to see with these cards. And it's sometimes harder to believe that we do the same with the whole economy. But this is how the whole economy operates. Are you we, saying that we live in a Pokemon economy? Why are you saying like that? Yeah, yeah. So we, we are actually <laughs> keeping the scarcity in an artificial way. We're keeping it instead of saying in somehow, okay, let's find a way to not keep it. Let's find yeah. a way to work in a different way, in a different system, without this scarcity, and let's leave this scarcity in the 1960s, because we can. Maybe let's do questions, a little bit discussion, and uh, probably wrap it up. To you and me, it's less exciting, and this was a technical mess, so we'll have to see. But I, I don't think we need to cover everything, because we talked about planned obsolescence already, and now I can go back talk to someone who actually researched planned obsolescence and know their shit. And then I can go back to you once I know how to podcast and I don't need like, uh, yeah, I don't need to be that confused with technicalities. Maybe that's a good place to do Q&A. Let's start that. Questions about Pokemons, about uh, food, food waste, textile, electronics we didn't even cover, but we... We understand, I think, electronics pretty much, how it's obsolete and everything. Like, Jonathan, why do this? <laughs> I know you want to start a, I know you want to start a discussion around everything. And all your points more or less make sense. It's more about awareness. But, yeah, I, I don't see the impact. Okay. Mainly I do it. Because it interests me and it's fun, mostly. <laughs> this is the main reason. I would be happy to say I want to change the world. I want to help people. But mainly because it's interesting. It's fun. I like to do it. I like to lecture. I like to talk about these topics with people. This is the main reason. But also because if I'm going to another aspect, it's you saying no impact. And I can relate to that. But I think... Most of the time, the public discussion or like the human discussion goes very slow and everyone contributes like one mil of a percentage to the discussion. And if I can contribute a comma or a dot to the human discussion, I'll be happy. And that's enough for me. That's an amazing answer. It, it covers partially what I, what I feel. It's for me... As, as I said, I live in this world and it doesn't make sense. And we have climate change and we have wars and we have scarcity, which is not real. 
So what can I do? I can do this. It's, it's not much. And I'm, and I'm going to tell people, okay, like and subscribe and share. And, and this is going to be my contribution. But uh, this is where I start. And this is where I'm doing something. And later on, hopefully, uh, we reach something. In all honesty, Jonathan has been doing it for like 10 years. And you have reached actually, even means um, uh, you reached primetime television once or twice now. Three times prime time for like 10, 15, 20 seconds, sometimes like one minute or two, maybe five, 10 times national radio, uh, many schools, many like uh, young leaders, um, programs. Okay. You talk to an educated person in Israel and without like Venus Project or whatever it is, resource-based economy, people know what we're talking about. People know that there's a contradiction within the system. Some people. It, it's, it doesn't help because the, the country is going to shit. But okay, that's because your circumstances, You if you were doing it in... Um, yeah. I think most of the people who in Israel who are dealing with social change, especially, especially with economic social change, they heard the Venus Project. They heard something about it. We did quite a good job in Israel for 10 years. I think like between 1% and 2% of the general population know about the Venus Project in Israel, which for me is amazing. 2% is a lot for me. And if we are going to the more educated people, more about social change, I think it's between 20 and 50%. Yeah. So Ali can't verify those numbers. Sorry, no, Ali. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, if, if uh, um, the professor I'm going to talk to next time, if she did the research, well, I don't think even the government is ready. So for me, it's also part of my passion. Like if she discovered why things are made obsolete intentionally, how and how do they work? And if she is she even thinking in this way or she's just like, oh, OK, I guess we have to make things obsolete. Or, or does she think we need to change something? These are topics I want to raise with her and with people who actually can maybe, maybe change something one day. Yeah. yeah. yeah so, so I don't expect that there's already an answer from from you um about how to like what is what is the solution of changing from a system of a system of scarcity to abundance but but um just in case you do and i do want to spoil the rest of the show uh do you have uh, is there any any uh, i don't know solution suggestion of changing how you use price as the method to decide the, the, the distribution? I'll, I'll try to answer it like very generally. It will be still very be vague. But mm-hmm. The question of how to decide who gets what is a question of scarcity. Only when you have scarcity, this question makes sense. If you have 10,000 apples and four friends, no one will ever think if it didn't raise in a very scarcity society, he will never think, how should we divide it among us? And I'll give you an example. The air you breathe at the room at the moment, all of you need it. Very need oh, yeah. it. It's very, very <laughs> We're in scarcity here, man. But, but who, who, will, uh, who is the owner of the air in the room? Who owns it? No one. Like The, the question is not even raised. Like you can say about, you, can, you, you know who owns almost everything on earth, but air, because air is in abundance, at least at the moment. I don't know what will happen in 20, 30, 40 years, but at yes. least at the moment, air is abundant. Then 
there is no discussion in the UN who, or whatever, in your government, who owns the air because it's so abundant. So at the moment, anything is abundant and, and it was abundant for generation and generation. There is no question who gets what, who gets how many air. You don't ask it. But if you're in a spacecraft and you have limited air, then the question raised. Then we say, okay, maybe, maybe women and children first, or maybe, maybe the leader first, or whatever. Then we can ask this question. So at the moment you are in an abundance system, the question, it doesn't even make sense. It makes sense only for people who raised in under scarcity situation. Only these people, which means all of us, <laughs> then we ask this question. Yeah. That makes sense somehow. Um, but I think, um, like, I cannot just ignore how capitalism made abundance at the first place because people have the, the things are in the abundance state uh, only because people think they are in scarce. Yes. Beginning, right? Yeah, of, of course. And we didn't say it. Maybe we'd bash too much on capitalism. Like, capitalism was great 100 years ago. 60 years ago, maybe. Uh, yeah, I was just thinking, if, if, if things don't get distributed uh, with price, with profits, then how would people want to produce things at the first place? So I, she, she asking about motivation. like Motivation. Now we talk, well, I know in the realm of like, uh, very good that you started, we will have a whole episode about that. But okay. Let's start. Start shortly, shortly, some answer on that. Uh, okay. I'll try to do it very shortly. I mean, I want to keep your next episode intact. It will be intact no matter what we say here. Okay, but okay. Oh, I mean, I mean, it depends on me and my motivation and you guys super helping I'll, me. But... I'll, I'll try to connect it to how we started. And I was like uh, yeah. babbling about culture and the myth in the culture. This part I edited out and it will be either re-recorded or edited in future episodes. Since it was somewhat confusing and incoherent. So one of the myths in our culture is that people only move and do things for money. And if they don't have these physical things uh, to make them um, motivated, they won't do anything. But actually, money is maybe one out of 40 motivation we can speak of when we go to behavioral science. We see so many different motivational uh, aspects and people do like one of the motivation is to belong, to belong to a community, to belong to somewhere. People do a lot for that. And also you can see people going to the gym and they work very hard, but no one pay for them. No one pay them to do that. And they actually pay a membership to do that. So yes, they have so a lot yeah, of motivation, but they don't get anything for it. And in Israel, you can see people who are going to combat unit in the army and actually jump on grenades to help their friends, but no one pay them to do that. And they have different kind of motivation. In this, in, in this um, case, it's because in Israel, we have such a military education. And like, since we are like in, se in second grade, they have these horrific sentences, like it's good to, to die for our country. This is like something they actually teach you in second grade. Like it's as like a, a, as a, a very famous <laughs> dude in history said it. I mean, yeah. I don't know if we, of course, people can look at it more cynically now, but people are still willing to go. But but they the, still but they still the, teach it. It's like like one of the heroes of the Israeli culture in the I don't know forties or thirties, and he was saying that when he was it like was dying, more the twenties, more the yeah yeah. So he was 20, like dying 30s. and saying it's good to die for my country. So they educated people like that since they are second grade. 
And then we are, when, when Israeli people are in 11th grade, 12th grade, this is just a little bit before the draft to the military, they start to compete each other. Yes, I'm going to this unit, I'm going to this unit, you know, something like that. And then when you have this education, you can see them do like crazy things, like really endanger their life for their country. So what I'm trying to say, that if you can make them um, endanger their life for the country, in practical meanings, it's easier to make them build for their country. It's still easier than spill their blood. So if that's possible, probably we can find a way to do that. Yeah, yeah maybe I can also talk about future episodes related to science. And there's a, Alim, you can look at, start looking at it now, you can finish looking it up later, but there's a whole study that was a very famous TED talk about what motivates us. And they look and they check that, that up for, for rep- repetitive tasks, money is a very good motivator. So once you get into creative area, after a certain, it, it doesn't work anymore. So, um, I mean, I need to, yeah, I need yeah, yeah. to tell you exactly this the study. Is the federal, but... This is a Federal Reserve, American but, Federal Reserve study. Right. Yeah. Study by American Federal Reserve, shortly kind of called What Motivates Us. It's, it's done by a bank institute, essentially. So we potentially need to cultivate the, some enthusiasts for planting potatoes. Yeah, I mean, whatever. I mean, uh, we haven't talked about automation and we haven't talked about our technology and what it can do today. And we haven't talked about um, about uh, the human capacity and potential and the curiosity, the natural curiosity of and I would kind of education system who the current education system who usually take this curiosity out of the people. But we can change the education system or we should change the education system as well. Yeah, this is like each one of them is an episode, but I mean, <laughs> but but in short, in short answer, very short answer, growing potatoes is something we can do automatically quite easy. We don't need people to do it. We don't need people to harvest the potatoes or or to saw, uh, see them. Yeah, or see them. We Actually, I would do it voluntarily for fun. But, you know, like to provide for everyone, we need robotics. Yeah, but but we don't need to do that. People would do different kind of jobs, but not this one, not like very uh, manual uh, Dirty jobs. jobs, dirty manual, repetitive jobs, yeah. Yeah, we hardly need people to do it today. We have such a to- like automatic tools to do that. We just don't use it enough. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Yes. Pleasure. Thank you, Jonathan Ganmo, for being with us. Thank Mukesh for hosting us in the studio. Thank Guitong for taking this video. Thank you, Jens Devald, for the post-production on a very professional level. To Victor Tendler for assisting uh, with the initial conception and initial work. For Alina Gidinia for the fact-checking and the show notes. To Achille Rudolph for coaching and pushing me to publish this podcast. And to Stephen Paul Taylor for the amazing music. Yeah, and everyone who... There was even more people helping me in this, so... I hope I meet you very soon in the next episode when we talk with someone who actually very, very professional to continue this discussion. 